human first, everything else after. Welcome to What's Betwixt Us, stories of working while human. I'm Lissa Mandel. What's Betwixt Us is a series of conversations about empathy at work, at work. It's about diving into the messiness and the specificity of being human on the job, any job, and how empathy isn't just a nice-sounding buzzword for company PR. It's a rebellious act of remembering that we're human first, everything else after. Today on What's Betwixt Us, I chat with Bernadette Smith, who brings her raw, honest, personal experiences of vulnerability to her work as a diversity, equity, and inclusion speaker, strategist, and trainer. She's also the author of several books, including Gay Wedding Confidential. We talk about psychological safety, the love languages of business, and how even though 61% of people still cover their true selves at work, we are in the early stages of a true employee revolution. Bernadette emits warmth, directness, and fierce, unbridled optimism. She says, I am fueled by hope. And full disclosure, you'll hear moments in this podcast when both myself and Bernadette pause as we try to catch our thoughts and our words. I was tempted to edit them out, but I figured if this is a podcast about who we really are, then all those things deserve to stay in. Please enjoy episode 14, Your Truth is Safe with Me, with Bernadette Smith. Well, I'm so excited to have on the podcast today, Bernadette Smith, who is a diversity and inclusion speaker and trainer based in the Chicago area. She is the CEO of the Equality Institute, uh, among several other uh, amazing um, projects and uh, just a delight, with very kind eyes. Bernadette, thank you for joining me. <laughs> thank you. That is a really nice thing for you to say about my eyes, actually. I appreciate that because... Um, wow, you're going to get me emotional right, right off the bat um, because my mom died when I was like 22, 23. Wow. And um, like her defining characteristic was that she was just like a purely kind person with kind eyes. So thank you for that compliment. I'm not sure I've ever <laughs> received it before. Oh, wow. Well, you're welcome. And I mean, it just was so clear right away. And, you know, of course, I'm not a person who wants to generalize based on how a person looks, but I definitely got a vibe from you right away that you have the empathy inside you. And obviously, I I cheated because I, I was researching about you and I see that you were involved in many empathetic projects, but you also, you all, I feel I feel kindness radiating from you. And I think that's actually a really great place to start. And I'm so glad you shared about your mom because what I was going to ask is that, um, is where the spark of um, fighting for things like empathy and uh, inclusion started for you? Because not only is it just a part of your career, you've made it the foundation of your whole career. So I would love to hear um, where the inspiration came from to make it your life's work. Thank you. Um, I don't know the answer of exactly where it came from. I'm the child of Irish immigrants who came to the U.S. to find a, to pursue the American dream, and they eventually started their own bar business and were very active in the church and the community. And my parents were were givers, and I have a big family of extended 
cousins and a lot of them are older than me, but everyone is just a really great person. They're, they're high quality, mm. kind, loving people. And, um, I guess I just maybe saw it around me cause I was the youngest by far. So maybe I just witnessed it, but I've also kind of always been this, had this like underdog fight in me. Um, and I have always had this entrepreneurial spirit in, in me. And I, the first organization that I ever became seriously involved with was Habitat for Humanity, which works with low-income people to build homes, affordable homes. And um, I started getting involved with them in high school and then throughout college. So it was really like there from the beginning, um, from a pretty early age. And I can only say it's, it's come, it came from my loving family. My family was far from perfect, but there was a lot of love. Um, I think that's so wonderful and so refreshing to hear. And, um, you know, having spoken to many people over the years, podcasting about speaking to them about their childhoods, mostly, you know, I hear a lot of, um, you know, the, the difficulties and the challenges with family relationships. And I don't as much hear people who uh, really love their families. And I think it's so beautiful that you've taken that gift that you were given and are now paying it forward, like this, this knowledge of, of kindness and paying it forward out into the world. Uh, that's awesome. Um, Thanks. I, I also think that part of it is, as soon as I got to college, I came out. Um, I came out as gay, and I, and I guess that sort of gave me another fight, another reason <laughs> to, to look out for the underdogs once I started to understand the inequalities that uh, or, and the lack of protections that LGBTQ people have um, and where they have no rights and no protections. And so that definitely sort of gave me a cause that was deeply personal um, and, and also helped me understand what it was like to be the other. Although I understood that pretty early on because I was the youngest child by far and I didn't have a lot of friends as a kid. Uh, so I understood what it was like to be the other pretty quickly, but coming out certainly um, helped me better understand that so I could be more empathetic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that resonates with me. The idea of being the outsider or being, being lonely, um, feeling different, kind of, it, it helps people overcompensate to be, to reach out even more um, than they maybe otherwise would have. Cause I had that experience as well. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Like I, I'd never had a lot of friends as a kid. Later on in high school, I started to have some, I, had a circle of friends, but overall I didn't have a lot of friends, but now I'm like so deeply extroverted. <laughs> Back then, I mean, I think anyone would have thought I was like a really shy, timid kid, um, but I'm not. Like I, maybe I was shy and timid, but I'm in my heart, like I'm, a, I'm an outgoing extrovert. I love people. And so I guess maybe that time was like, as a child was sort of the insulation for what's to come or I don't know. Yeah, no, that makes so much sense to me. And I, and I love this. And I, I just feel like I, I just met you and I, and I really like you. And I think it's because I recognize similar experiences. And I was also very, very shy when I was a kid. And it wasn't until um, I, I got to college that I felt like I could really um, open up. And then once I did opened up, open up, it was like all the way. It was like, 
an explosion yeah. of so I get the extra version. Um, I love that. Um, I would love for you to talk a little bit about the Equality Institute um, and uh, sort of explain to the listeners um, where the idea came from and and the services that that you provide for companies. Sure, I'm going to actually start that story by telling you about my first business. Okay. And this is like, this business was all about empathy. <laughs> um, so back in 2004, I was living in Boston and Massachusetts became the first state in the country to legalize same-sex marriage. Yeah. So marriage equality came to Massachusetts, or at least the, they, the, law, the Supreme, state Supreme Court ruling ruled in favor. But there were all of these protests. People are trying to change the Constitution, long hearings and protests outside the state house for six months. And I was going to the state house after work and on my lunch break, and I was all caught up in this big movement and, you know, being part of the community myself. And I had a girlfriend. I'm like, yeah, this is, this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. But... These couples, some of whom have been together for decades, they could experience discrimination. Only about a third of our country at the time supported uh, marriage equality. So they're going to experience some discrimination. And then I realized the wedding industry was super heteronormative, like very, very bride focused. And, mm-hmm. and that these couples, they're going to have a hard time. So I decided basically right then and there on the state house steps, I looked around at all those couples and I decided I'm going to be a wedding planner. <laughs> and I'm going to be an activist wedding planner. Yes. <laughs> I am going to have these couples back. So I want them to feel safe. I want them to feel protected. I want them to feel empowered to truly be themselves authentically on their wedding day. And so, so that was my first business and it actually did really well. And, um, and as time went on, I realized that, yeah, I was having a great time with these couples and it was important work, but I could have a much bigger impact on the wedding industry as a whole if I started to speak and train as well. So uh, around 2009, I started speaking at conferences. I think that may have been when I wrote my first book, which was called Gay Wedding Confidential, and it was a how-to guide, (laughs) how-to guide for couples. Um, And, you know, essentially I started becoming like an expert in LGBTQ weddings. And uh, it was really cool. And I love the speaking and training piece. And then as time went on and I started and I eventually moved to New York and planned some very expensive weddings there. And all of a sudden I started to feel less like an activist wedding planner and more like a high-end luxury wedding planner which is not really how I saw myself. <laughs> right, that wasn't the plan. That was not the plan. <laughs> it, it wasn't the plan. <laughs> and it was hard work. I mean, working with New York couples is hard. <laughs> yeah, not that work. <laughs> New Yorkers are very discerning, let's say. Yeah, exactly. And not, not to say that they shouldn't be and, uh, you know, they're spending a lot of money. Like, I totally get all that. Um, it just wasn't the kind of work that it was... truly felt like a calling anymore. And so long story short, I eventually moved to Chicago. I had gotten divorced myself, moved to Chicago, and then I decided I'm not going to start my business all over here. But I had really been increasingly building the speaking and training piece 
beyond weddings into travel and other parts of hospitality. And then I decided, all right, that's, it's the time has come to pivot away from weddings and travel and to also pivot away from just LGBTQ inclusion. And we'll talk, start talking about diversity and inclusion more broadly to other industries mm -hmm. and really how can we be more inclusive so that everyone has the chance to walk through the world with dignity. And, and that's something that I really care about. Yeah, that's awesome. That's beautiful. And I really bow down to your um, really listening deeply to following your winding path. And, and whenever you felt like you were out of alignment, you adjusted and adjusted. And um, I think that takes real courage and a real ability to listen to yourself. Um, so thank you for setting that example. Uh, you're, thank you for saying that. I mean, I, I'll be honest, like it, it is, it has been a long and winding road. There's been a lot of all of the emotions that come with being an entrepreneur. There's imposter syndrome, there's uh, cash flow problems, <laughs> there's like all of the challenges. I mean, I essentially had to, once I decided to, to make this bigger pivot, I, I had to reinvent myself in different industries. Like I had a, to build a completely different network, different network. And uh, that, was, that was a big challenge. It was yeah. really, really hard. Well, because it's one thing to cultivate empathy among others who are more similar to you or going facing very similar challenges. And it's another thing to cultivate empathy among industries where uh, maybe the ideas of empathy and inclusion and diversity are not as um, not as well understood. And so it's like being that like choosing to be an alien in these industries that could really use your help, but, um, but maybe are a little bit lost, um, you know, as opposed to speaking to people who, who really get you right away. You know, I will say that I felt like an alien in the wedding industry. Oh yeah. First of all, I look like no one else, <laughs> right? I'm like a chapstick lesbian in a wedding industry. That's very, very, very hetero, very hetero, cishet, like very, very traditional still, even as it's become less traditional, sure. it's still incredibly traditional. And um, I always felt like, you know, a unicorn and not, not always in a good way. Mm -hmm. I felt pressure to conform, to be more feminine than I really am. I felt, but I also have felt <laughs> from other people to be more masculine than I really am. So anyway, it's it, and not, not to take you on my gender expression journey. I but, want um, to go on that journey. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> um, anyway, I mean, it's, it's cert I certainly felt like an outsider plenty yeah. in that space, even when I became a leader in that space. Yeah, wow. And wow, that takes balls <laughs> for lack of a better term. Um, I, I wonder if you could speak about um, uh, the experience of going uh, to companies, you know, to clients that hire you to speak about diversity and inclusion um, and, and what, you, what you say to people who, um, or how do you approach people who don't even know where to start? Well, I will say that I don't wanna spend a lot of time making the case. Mm -hmm. So if they need to be convinced 
I'm probably not the person. I mean, I can give them all sorts of data about companies with diverse employees outperform companies with non-diverse employees by, you know, a third. Like I can give them all sorts of data, but hopefully by the time they've reached out to me, they know that there's a problem. And so I really approach my clients with a problem solving mentality. What are the conversations you're having? What are the things you're hearing? What are the challenges that you've seen? And how can we solve this problem? My personal passion is speaking and training um, and really helping open hearts and minds that way. Um, and I use a lot of empathy in my speeches, by the way. Of course. <laughs> uh, storytelling. Um, Oh, say more about that. Well, you know what? I, one of the big challenges that many, many companies have is there are lots of employees who don't feel comfortable showing up authentically. Hmm. And if, if they don't feel comfortable expressing all of whom they are, whether that's their sexual orientation or, the, or their gender identity, or whether it's the fact that someone in their family has COVID, or whether it's the fact that um, they are very religious or whether it's their, who they're voting for, you know, people are hiding all parts of who, lots of parts of who they are. And, and if they are spending a lot of time doing that, then that means they're less focused at work. And it also probably means that they are not sharing other things in the workplace. So for example, if you're not comfortable sharing you're coming out as gay in your workplace, are you gonna be comfortable sharing your brilliant idea? Right. They really go hand in hand. And that's, that is actually called psychological safety. So, yes. yeah, so, it, so really, I, as I'm talking about psychological safety and this concept of not showing up authentically, which is called covering and which 61% of people do in the workplace. Yeah. Um, as I talk about that in my trainings, I talk about how going through a divorce was really hard when I was in the wedding industry, right? <laughs> because I was working with clients who, some of whom like really put me on a pedestal and they saw me as a role model. And, you know, a lot of people for whom I was like the only lesbian mom they knew, or like, I, I know that I, I, I did that for some folks. And then as I was going through my own challenges i know that i wasn't showing up authentically i know that i like i would have clients who had either met my ex or uh, people in the industry who had who'd ask me how things how how she was doing or where we were headed next um and i i kept all of it under wraps and it really led me to not be as productive or as authentic as i'm capable of being and so I covered, right? I covered because I was embarrassed. I had a lot of shame around that split. Mm -hmm. And that's an example of what I can bring to, through storytelling to an audience that, you know, they can sort of say, well, maybe it's not divorce, but maybe it's, you know, my son's mental illness, or maybe it's whatever, mm -hmm. that they're not showing up authentically. And it really has this ripple effect. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that um, you basically, you set the example and you set the tone by being vulnerable first so that when other people can see you do this and say, oh, she's a real person who's going through real human dramas, um, I guess I, I, could, I also have these dramas and they're also okay to speak out loud. 
That's exactly right. I mean, I think Brene Brown nails it in all oh, of her yeah. work on, on vulnerability. Um, when we are brave enough to be vulnerable, we give others permission to do the same. And that's a really powerful leadership skill. I see, I see why Michael put us in touch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I, I love that. I, I, so I used to host this podcast uh, that was, as I said, about childhood. And I would begin every episode by reading from one of my own um, childhood journals or poetry I wrote when I was a kid, you know, uh, just absolutely embarrassing and, and dramatic and ridiculous, but uh, it was a talk show. And so if I did it first, uh, then I invited my guest on to share whatever their artifact or creation was from their youth. You know, the stage was set. Uh, this was a safe space to express something that maybe is embarrassing to share. So I, I love Exactly. That. And you know what, I'm really glad you said embarrassing because I do think that embarrassment is a really powerful emotional trigger for change. Mm, yes, talk about that, please. And it's, it's an emotional trigger that I don't see often used in trainings. Mm -hmm. And I use it because I think that it works. Uh, so, and also because it gives me the ability to be self-deprecating and to be funny to the audience. Exactly. So, so for, yeah, and, and that's very relatable, right? They, they start to like you already. Um, and, yep. and so, you know, when I talk about, when I do a training or a speech, I'm often talking about the assumptions that we make about other people mm -hmm. and how those assumptions, they can be really little, you know, we can assume someone is um, a mom because they're at the playground with a child and maybe it's not a mom, maybe it's a nanny, maybe it's whomever, right? Like we make assumptions all the time really quick, no big deal mm -hmm. most of the time, but those assumptions, and it's just simply because there are, there are brains shortcuts, it's the way our brains are programmed, those assumptions can actually get pretty big and they can get us into trouble. And so I start by telling some stories about assumptions that I've made, like I'll never forget the time, even though it was a long time ago, that I ran into a former client and I said, oh my goodness, haven't seen you in so long. I looked down, looked like she had a baby bump, and I said, oh my gosh, when's the baby due? And she said, I had the baby three months ago. And it was completely <laughs> embarrassing, right? I, I was mortified, it was really awkward, but I will never make that mistake again. Right, that's how you learn for sure. <laughs> right, and so embarrassment is a powerful emotional trigger for change. Oh, I love that you said that. And I think it's really um, rebellious as a thought because a lot of people, you know, they, they consider their workplace uh, very separate from, from their personal life. And, you know, they have to in order to uh, protect themselves for psychological safety, as you said, which is a concept that I think about a lot. And uh, at the company where I work, uh, Zany, which uh, is, this, is the app that, um, uh, that produces this podcast, basically, uh, that is about building trust through um, authentic conversation people feel like they have to compartmentalize their work from their personal life um, and that there's something about work that needs to be formalized, you know, and there's an etiquette and it prevents authenticity. And I wonder if you've seen over the course of time that you've been working with clients, that you've been working with diversity inclusion, if you've seen those veils start to lift, if you've seen a shift in how much the personal comes into the workspace. 
I think that there's definitely been a shift. I think that there's a lot more conversation about this, right? People are starting to realize that it is important. Leaders are starting to realize that it's important to give your employees permission. And there's a lot of people doing inclusive leadership trainings, which is one of the things that I do. Um, and so, yeah, it's starting to happen. It's probably starting to happen more often in the leadership levels of large companies and then also in small companies and probably not happening a lot in the mid in 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 the mid market companies and in the middle managers hmm. so it's big companies know that this is important sure. and they're investing in it and then they're investing in it at the leadership level but it's not always trickling down to the middle managers right so that it's happening there mm -hmm. and it's happening in smaller companies who haven't gotten big enough yet where they are creating a culture where uh, of exclusion or of um i guess rigidity like people in smaller companies people kind of have have permission when the culture is kind of loose and fun right they right. can be more authentic right. but then you know as as companies start to grow there become norms and pressures to conform and people that are hired who look like the other people who are already part of the team and that just sort of creates this culture that uh where people who don't fit in are on the outs. So, yeah, that's, and, and it's a really big problem with middle managers because middle managers often are not nurtured. Uh, they're, they're not given leadership skills. Sure. Yeah. And that's where you come in. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, I'm curious um, how you found, what you've noticed about um, empathy um, and where it's had to kind of rise to meet the challenge uh, during this crazy pandemic and quarantine time. If you've, if you've seen moments of uh, where people have had to lean on empathy a little bit more than they normally would. Absolutely. I, I think we have to. Um, our employees are suffering for lots of reasons. Uh, we're, they're suffering because of whatever circumstances they have in their home life. So whether it's, you know, a domestic situation that's worsened because they don't have anywhere to go 40 hours a week, whether it's remote learning and basically homeschooling kids, whether it's, you know, being embarrassed about your work from home setup, or maybe it's the fact that you don't live with anyone and you're really alone and it's a really lonely time. Or, or maybe it's because, you are a black person and enough is enough and you are basically having to keep silence about the fact that black people are being shot by the police all the time and it's just trauma that you don't feel comfortable bringing to work and those conversations are starting to happen more and more so there are a whole lot of things going on right now maybe you're a caretaker for someone with covid or you're grieving the loss of someone from covid um so many things happening right now and if we're not empathetic we're heartless mm, yeah it's sort or, of like you gotta you gotta get on the train because the train is leaving the station yeah Exactly. So I'm really glad to start. I kind of feel like the revolution is coming and mm -hmm. certainly the work from home revolution, the, the acceptance of greater diversity of uh, home situations, the freedom to, to 
I, I feel like there's a lot more freedom and I do feel like people are giving, being given more permission to show up authentically um, because of not everyone's work, work from home situation is perfect. And also because employees have said, black employees have said, and white people have also said and taken to the streets and said, we start, we, we enough is enough. And we need to start having conversations about what it means to be black in the workplace, what it means to uh, have trauma from the legacies of systemic racism and all of that. There, there's a, a million different types of trauma that people are going through right now. And, um, and, I, and, and it's coming into the workplace so dramatically that companies really don't have a choice. If yeah. they are not speaking up, if they are not being proactive, it's stuff that their employees are going to remember long after this is over. Yeah, it's it's sort of it feels like um, we've we've kind of gone over this tipping point, and and I noticed this in, a little bit in um, you know the film industry because I'm also an actor, and so I kind of have my finger in that pot as well, and. Um, where people, uh, which started a few years ago with the Me Too movement, uh, it used to be, you know, you would take a job uh, regardless of the, the, the crappy circumstances because it was a job and it's so hard to get in the industry that you just have to swallow it. But what I've noticed that has ramped up a lot, especially during the course of this pandemic, is people saying, nope, you know what, my dignity uh, is more important than this job. And people turning down um, major, you know, Hollywood opportunities because they are attached to people who are, you know, not the best people or who are unsavory. And are you, are you seeing that tipping point across other industries as well? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I right now I do think that companies have the power, um, but the employee revolution is happening and it's happening across industries and, people are starting to feel empowered to use their words mm -hmm. and they're starting to learn the tools of how to be a great ally. They're starting to learn words and definitions of things like anti-racism and white supremacy. They are starting to realize that the old way of doing things is not going to work anymore. And so even though I do think the companies have the power, employees are having this awakening and this putting a lot of pressure on companies, it's going to completely transform how things are done in the future. Oh, that's beautiful. I love the word awakening. I kind of want to tattoo it on my body. Um, <laughs> <laughs> have you had experiences where um, you've spoken to companies and, and people within the companies? who are not in leadership positions have approached you uh, and said, hey, I'm, I'm having this problem. What would you, like, to what extent are you on the micro level uh, speaking to individuals um, or is it mostly just um, speaking to the whole company uh, at large? I mean, usually I'm speaking to a, a group of 30 people or so. I mean, sometimes when I'm doing a keynote, it's hundreds of people. And I, people come up to me afterwards or they'll send me LinkedIn messages, um, which is awesome. And actually, recently I did a session, a virtual session, and uh, I had a nice LinkedIn message from someone who attended. And she said that she wasn't out at work. She's worked for the company, for, which is based in Chicago, for uh, 19 years or something. Wow. And she is 
I think she's like roughly my age. So she's been that, with that company for her, basically her entire career, wow. hasn't come out, considers it's a conservative company, um, hasn't come out as, as a lesbian. But this session that I taught was an LGBTQ leadership session. And so she was like, I, I'm really glad they're doing this, but I don't feel safe. And, you know, how can you, you know, how, what, what else can I do or how can you help me? Or, you know, so uh, we had a, a, a great back and forth and I basically get forwarded, I, I didn't forward her exact comments, but I took some of her comments and <clears throat> shared them with the leader anonymously um, and said, you know, this is really happening in your organization. People don't feel safe. Mm -hmm. And this wow. matters. Yeah. I mean, I'm really glad that you were that you were there for her and you were able to be a liaison in that way. Uh, I think that's super important because um, uh, you have this, you're in this um, sort of privileged place where because you're outside of the company, you can have um, a, a third person like unbiased uh, voice uh, when other people don't feel like they can speak up. And I think that's awesome. Thank you. Although let me, say that i um i sent this message to my contact at the company and there were a few other things in the email as well mm -hmm. and my response the response i received addressed all the other things in the email except that whoa yep which is what just a denial a denial of the truth i mean i don't know what they if it if they're going to take any action i i don't know i i really don't know and yes um and the person who i emailed who had been my contact was gay hmm. um and so I, I don't know i mean maybe maybe there was nothing else to say I, who who knows i you know but i i feel like all right i i did what i was supposed to do here i did the right thing and Hopefully she'll, I mean, it was anonymous, so she's not going to get any direct support, but hopefully, hopefully there will be some sort of trigger for change there. Who knows? Yeah. I, even if it's not immediate, even if you can't see it right away, I, at least the, at least she knows that, that she could tell you. Um, and I think that that's important sometimes that people just have a confidant, even if they can't change the system that they're in at the moment. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The vulnerability piece um, is, it's cool because it's, it's nice to be able to, well, first of all, I mean, I went through so many years, like literally three, three years of having walls up around my divorce mm -hmm. and having shame. And so when I talk about that and in some other vulnerable stories, it's really cool to see people open up. And it's not hard for me to talk about that now. And I don't, so I don't know what took me so long, but, um, you know, I think that it matters. Um, I really think that it matters and it's something that every leader should figure out what their stories are. And the more we can start sharing bits of ourselves, the more, you know, we're, it's revolutionary. It really is. Absolutely. We're, yeah. And it's every, and every individual has a voice. Every individual matters. And when we are just so busy and we're going through life and I am so guilty of this, we just see people as kind of a blur mm -hmm. and we lump people together and we don't always take the time to sit and 
listen and have meaningful conversations. Um, and I say this definitely as someone who is guilty of it, especially when it comes to my family. How so? I think that I am less empathetic of my family than I am of other people. Mm. And that's, <laughs> and you know, I don't know why, maybe it's because I'm, I'm close to them. Maybe it's because come on kids, like pick up your after yourself. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, I, mean, I, I am the same. I, you know, it's the thing about the, the cobbler's children have no shoes. Um, mm -hmm. The people who are closest to you, I think we naturally, we get so comfortable uh, that we, we take for granted some things. I mean, I'm the same way with my partner where I'm like, mm -hmm. can you please just pick your pants up off the floor? Is that really mm -hmm. that hard? And I maybe speak to him in ways that I, that I wouldn't speak to total strangers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I, I, I take them for granted a little bit. I mean, I'm glad I'm aware of it now. I'm, I'm more demanding and I'm less sympathetic. Yeah, well, I think as long as you cultivate an awareness, that's that's all you can do. That's all you can do. Absolutely. Um, I but I remember when we were blending families, right? And my partner has four kids and I have one. And Oh, wow. Geez, it's, it's hard going, you know, kids going back and forth between houses and kids' hormones surging. Like, there's a lot that they have. Yeah. And of course, there are going to be some behavior issues that come up as a result. Of course. Right. And, and I have not always been empathetic in those situations. Well, but it's also the fact, I mean, it really speaks highly of you that you are able to admit that to yourself uh, and admit it out loud because that's how change begins. It's not, you're not in denial sure. of it. And that's a lot of kids to <laughs> negotiate personalities. Absolutely. It is. I wonder if you could, talk to me a little bit about, because you're somebody who brings education about empathy to, to other people. And I wonder if you have stories of, of moments or examples of moments uh, in your life when empathy has been shown to you when you've really needed it. Oh, my goodness. Empathy shown to me when I've needed it. I, I'm sure that there are examples. I would need to spend some time on this. Can we come back to this question? Of course. Yeah, of course. I didn't Sorry. Even put you on the spot in a way. No, I, um, I guess, yeah, because it's easy. This is a way in which I think that we're similar, where it's easy for me to say, oh, well, like, here's a million tiny ways that I can show empathy every day, right? I can, I can compliment my barista, or I can, mm -hmm. you know, say thank you to the mailman, or um, you know, just small things. Yeah. But when I'm thinking about, you know, in reverse, does it happen as much in reverse? Or I guess ways in which you show empathy to yourself. Yeah. I mean, I certainly have a lot of self-care practices uh, because I, I need to, uh, because being an entrepreneur is, it's a, it's a slog sometimes. Uh, so I have to take care of myself. I, I journal and I meditate twice a day and I, you know, I, I, I have lots of things that I do. I have mantras, I have <laughs> affirmations, <laughs> mm -hmm. I have my vision board up there. <laughs> yeah. I walk around in my backyard in my bare feet to ground myself in the yes. earth. I love that. I do that too. Uh, it's the best. Yeah. Uh, I'm, but I, 
I'm sure I'll come up with this, some examples of empathy. You know, I think maybe it's me, for me, I think it's been about kind of mentorship and mm. some folks who've really had my back as mentors and saw potential in me and gave me opportunities. Some business coaches, people like that, that really saw what I was up to, believed in me and, you know, opened up doors. And I think that being a mentor, being a sponsor of others is a great way to be empathetic because it's, first of all, it can, we all have the ability to do it. It doesn't cost any money, which is a nice thing about empathy. Yes. Um, but we also have insane, well, I have insane amounts of privilege. I have privilege because I'm white. I have a master's degree. I own my house. Like I have a lot of privilege and I really feel like it's our responsibility when we have privilege or when we have advantages, it's our responsibility to give back. Yeah. It is like the universal truth. Like mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. it is not just about, it's a nice thing to do. Like it's like one of the laws of the universe. <laughs> oh, I totally agree. Well, because I think a lot of the time, especially in the US, it's so uh, individual driven. It's like, what, what do I have? What is for me? You know, as opposed to if you zoomed all the way out, you could see that the universe is always trying to balance itself out. But right. That's what harmony. Yeah, is. exactly. Exactly. And so I think that empathy is, is a, a huge part of that. Right. So, you know, when I think about who's been empathetic for me, it's been about people who've opened up doors, um, mm -hmm. people who've given me opportunities. One person, this is kind of a story of someone who gave me a shot, but also I was able to give something really powerful to her. And this goes back to my days of wedding planning. Mm -hmm. And I had heard from a bride who's interested in having me plan her wedding. And she's someone who I knew was wealthy. I knew this was a chance for me to really... Um, have a bigger sort of stage, bigger experience, make some more money than I was normally doing. So this was, I knew it was going to be a really great wedding, like a kind of, kind of an over the top wedding. Mm -hmm. And she is a transgender woman. And she hired me because she wanted to feel, and she's also, by the way, in her like mid fifties or late, mid late fifties at the time, she hired me because she wanted me to help her become the bride she'd always dreamed of. And she was really moved by my commitment to be an advocate, to be an activist, to be, have my clients back. Mm -hmm. So I was empathetic towards her and I, and I took amazing care of her. And, you know, we had a, a very profound experience working together and all of, I mean, I can tell you a lot of stories about that, but she was empathetic towards me and she gave me a shot and she gave me an opportunity and um, stretched me in a great way. Yeah, you know, I, you just kind of turned a light bulb on in my head, which is, you know, sometimes when I'm talking about, uh, talking to my friends or my therapist about, you know, relationships, about my relationship, about, we talk about love languages, right? Um, which is mm -hmm. usually, you know, in the context of like a romantic relationship, but what you're saying, the empathy that was extended to you that you needed was basically, um, you know, acts of service. And that is mm -hmm. a love language too. And what an interesting thing to think about asking about every person that you work with, you know, 
what is their love language? What is the way in which they need to be uh, supported? It's going to be different for every single person. That's exactly right. I, I think it's really funny you talked about love language. It's something my partner and I are very in tune to about each other. <laughs> um, and I think it matters. And yeah, and, and whatever one needs is different. I mean, I think it, that also ties back to assumptions. And we can't assume that everyone else needs the same thing that we do. Yeah, exactly. Or everyone operates the same way that we do, or everyone learns the same way that we do, or everyone communicates, right? Yeah. Wow. My mind is kind of blown right now. Um. <laughs> <laughs> the love languages of business, because really, you know, there is a, I mean, business is love. Like if we're doing it right, there's, and if we brought more love into the workplace, it would be completely transformed. Oh, I, I totally agree. And that, that just requires that the, that the point of business is more to um, serve humanity than it is to, you know, make profits. And obviously profits are a part of it. That's what happens in capitalism. But, you know, when it's gotten to the point that the profits are more important than the people, the balance is off. Exactly. Exactly. I, I'm very keenly always on the lookout for examples of good deeds and good deeds by companies, by organizations, because I am fueled by hope. I am someone who's very motivated by positive energy and it, and there's a lot of negativity to find. Absolutely. So actually every Saturday I send out a newsletter called five things and it's five things that I have found that week that are what I consider to be positive or inspirational or exciting all related to diversity, equity, inclusion, or corporate social responsibility. So they're essentially corporate good deeds. That is awesome. I need to get on that mailing list. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll put you on. It's, it's a really uh, profound exercise for me because A, it keeps me in the spirit of learning because finding these five things, which are good news, not bad news every week <laughs> yeah. is, <laughs> is rigorous. It's challenging, right? Um, but also it provides me with hope and all of these things are best practices. Mm -hmm. I have put out 60 of these newsletters and every one of them is full of best practices that any company can take and be more empathetic. And a lot of them are systemic change. They're not just about behavior. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we, we actually can think about changing systems to be more empathetic and more inclusive that becomes a lot more sustainable than expecting people to change their behavior. Absolutely. Well, if the system changes, then everything else, you know, uh, rip, it's a ripple effect there too. Yep. Uh, that's, that's awesome. Um, I, I love to think of, um, I, I love that you put effort into looking for the positive and putting effort toward that because of course humans have a bias toward toward the negative just because our primal lizard brains are 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 fear-based unless we do yeah. something about it you know exactly we're looking for the threats but i love that you're putting a spotlight on on the opposite of that that's awesome well i will put you on my newsletter list and, and if any of your readers or listeners i should say <laughs> want to join they can sign up at the equality slash join amazing well bernadette this has been such a delight. I love speaking to you and 
Uh, I've been asking my guests at the end of each episode um, one of the questions from uh, from the Zany app, from the conversation database that has nothing to do with work at all. So for you, Bernadette Smith, uh, the question I have chosen <laughs> is, uh, what color do you think your aura is and why? <laughs> Interesting. I mean, I guess my... I will say my brand colors are like an eggplant and a gray, and then the the sub colors are like a lime and an orange. And so those are the colors of my brand. I don't know that those are the colors of my aura, but I think the color of my aura is probably like um, an orangish red. Oh, I love I'm, that. I'm a double fire sign very feisty <laughs> extrovert <laughs> um so yeah so i have a lot of like that sort of passion of fiery energy in me love it and i relate i love it from one orange person to another <laughs> uh, bernadette thank you so much for talking to me on what's between us thank you for having me it's been great Thanks for tuning in to episode 14 of What's Betwixt Us, Stories of Working While Human. To learn more about Bernadette and her prolific work, and to sign up for the Five Things newsletter, check out theequalityinstitute.com. What's Betwixt Us is powered by Zany, designed to build trust and authentic human connection in remote workspaces. More at zanie.app. Human first, everything else after. Human first, everything else after.